0: personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: <clears> at <throat> and connects an O to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your
0: Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. Time to go into the vault for a classic episode of the show. This one originally aired March 12th, 2020, and this one was the first in a two-part series we did about whether or not invertebrates, like insects and worms and creatures like that, can feel emotions. I thought this was a cool question.
1: Yeah, this one will really change the way you think about all the creepy crawlies in the world around you. All right, let's go ahead and dive into part one.
0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick. And today is going to be the first in a couple of episodes that we wanted to do on the subject of invertebrate emotions. And strangely enough, I got interested in this subject the other day after I was reading a poem, not a scientific paper. I was reading a poem by the American modernist poet uh, Marianne Moore, who I like a lot. She she writes a lot about like fish and You know, uh, marine organisms. Uh, She lived from 1887 to 1972. And if, if it's okay with you, Robert, I wanted to start off this episode just by reading this poem that I encountered the other day. Absolutely. Okay. It is called The Paper Nautilus. For authorities whose hopes are shaped by mercenaries, writers entrapped by tea time fame and by commuters' comforts, not for these, the paper nautilus constructs her thin glass shell... Giving her perishable souvenir of hope, a dull white outside and smooth-edged inner surface, glossy as the sea, the watchful maker of it guards it day and night. She scarcely eats until her eggs are hatched, buried eightfold in her eight arms, for she is in a sense a devil fish. Her glass ram's horn cradled frayed is hid but not crushed, as Hercules, bitten by a crab loyal to the hydra, was hindered to succeed, the Intensively watched eggs coming from the shell free it when they are freed, leaving its wasp-nest flaws of white-on-white and close-laid ionic chitin folds like the lines in the mane of a Parthenon horse, round which the arms had wound themselves as if they knew love is the only fortress strong enough to trust to.
1: Oh, that's nice. Yeah, I really like that last part, especially.
0: Me too. I mean, I love the way it moves from um, this uh, this direct, almost clinical description of the actual biology of the paper nautilus and how it builds its shell and all that, and goes from that to these classical allusions, and then ultimately ends on this powerfully emotional note that kind of gives me a, a shiver. Uh, so, the late uh, American poet Anthony Haight, writing about Moore, said that one of the things he liked most about her poems was that they had. Quite quote, a capacity for pure praise that has absolutely biblical awe in it. And I think you kind of see that here. I like that quality a lot, too. It captures in language some of the overwhelming, almost religious kind of power, I feel, when looking at some animals, especially animals that live in the ocean. But also the the poem really just has a very worthy subject. The paper nautilus, also known as the argonaut, is a remarkable species. And uh, the, the shell that is talked about in the poem, the egg case, is a genuinely gorgeous wonder of evolution.
1: Yeah, this is quite a remarkable uh, critter. So, the Argonaut. Uh, first, let's just talk about the, the name. Uh, this is, of course, uh, a reference uh, to Greek mythology, and we, uh, we recently talked about this on our other show, Invention. Right, uh, uh, the myth of Jason and the Argonauts. Right, yeah, because the, uh, the Argonaut just means sailors of the Argo, the Argo being the ship built by Argus, and the ship upon which Jason sails in his quest to find the Golden Fleece. Right. Uh, which itself was a sacred pelt of a winged ram. But the Argonaut we're talking about here is... Uh, the paper nautilus, a member of the genus Argonauta, So they're octopod cephalopods, and uh, there are as many as 53 species that have been described. They have this delicate calcite shell, hence the nickname. And these shells were once thought to be pilfered like the shells of a hermit crab. There was a the question of where did they acquire these things? Well, they must have, uh, they must have stolen them. Uh, they must be using them, right?
0: Right. And they wouldn't be the only octopus that finds a shell or some kind of, you know, a coconut or something and picks it up and uses it. It.
1: right uh, and uh, and this is also uh, another contributing factor to this interpretation is the fact that the uh, the argonaut is not physically attached to the shell right uh, like when a specimen is examined the the creature can be removed from the shell with ease, though it typically um, Expires if that is done to it. So um, we've known about them for these creatures for thousands of years. They pop up in art from 3000 BCE, according to Mark Carnell, writing for the Guardian. But we did not know how they made their eggshells until the 19th century. Uh, so this is what happens: the female, and only the female, secretes the shells via specialized arms, and the resulting shell. It's essentially a flotation device uh, that resembles the shell of extinct ammonites. Uh, they lay their eggs inside of these shells. They retreat inside. Sometimes you'll you'll uh, you'll find the detached reproductive arm of a male, a uh, hectocotylus, and then uh, she'll use she'll use the shell though to control her buoyancy in the water. There
0: are so many interesting things going on here. I mean, number one is just the implied history of mating that at some point a male octopus came along and mated by, what, tearing off one of its own arms and giving it to her?
1: Yeah, yeah, basically. It is uh, (laughs) like a detachable sexual organ uh, that then she keeps. Uh, But yeah, the other thing about this shell that's so fascinating is when we think of shells, we think of just pure defense. We think of the hard shelter that is grown out of the animal that the animal may retreat into. Right, but there
0: in the common name, the paper nautilus, it implies that the shell is very delicate.
1: Yeah, it is not a defensive structure, at least not in the same way that a true shell is. I mean, it, it is, you can't argue that it is protective for the young that reside within it because it is a very slim barrier between them and the open ocean and you know keeps them close to the female. Uh, but mainly it is the means by which this particular type of octopod returned to the open sea as its kin had largely evolved for seafloor life and left the open waters to the squid.
0: Ah, huh, okay. So the octopus is generally going to be found... Uh, I don't know, along the bottom, or maybe hiding along along a reef, or something like that. But this one just takes out to the open waters with a flotation device of its own making.
1: Like one way, and this is you know an elaborate and probably a little poetic way to, to think of it, but. You can think of the squid as the angel, and the octopus as the fallen angel that has lost its <laughs> wings. But this particular uh, octopod has, uh, I guess, Miltonian aspirations, and uh, or or is uh, or is you know lined up with the thinking of uh, Daedalus and Icarus, and it is building its own shell that will uh, that in this case will uh, will allow it to ascend up uh, in, in the water towards the surface. Now, there's uh, uh, another thing I want to throw in is uh, when you get into the, uh, the sexual dimorphism here, the females are up to 600 times the weight of the males. Uh, and again, the males do not engage in this kind of shell uh, construction and growth. But a great deal of mystery remains about how the Argonaut lives its life, uh, and and indeed how they even evolved. Uh, Neil Monks and C. Phil Palmer, authors of the 2002 Smithsonian book Ammonites, they have suggested that these ancient octopuses might have depended on uh, the discarded shells of Ammonites in prehistoric times and used their abilities to mend the shells. So the idea might be that uh, uh, originally they stole shells from a now extinct animal and then used these... uh, uh, these abilities to to patch them up and make them fit, to customize them a little bit, but still largely depend on a stolen shell. Interesting. I mean, there is a physical
0: similarity. If you haven't seen ammonite shells, they, they tend to be spiral shaped. Yes, uh, they're. Uh, it, at some point in the past, I talked about our recent trip to uh, Lyme Regis in uh, in the UK, where on the beach you can find fossils of ammonites from you know hundreds of millions of years ago. Yeah, and they are these colossal serial killer spirals etched <laughs>
1: into the rocks. It, it's very very cool. But yeah, at some point, the Ammonites disappeared. So yeah, they, they went extinct in the uh, Cretaceous Paleogene extinction event. And so what, what do you do if you depend upon that shell? So the idea here is that the, uh, the ancient paper nautiluses would then had to use their mending skills to just create a shell of their own in order to do the same sort of things that they did previously. So what they what they once
0: used to repair, they had to create from scratch.
1: Yes, that's, that's at least one, uh, one theory that's out there. It's also highly possible that we're just talking about convergent evolution here and the paper nautilus' eggshell just happens to resemble that of an ammonite.
0: Sure. But it really does look similar. But then again, you can see other signs of similar types of possible convergent evolution. I mean, the nautilus, not the paper nautilus, but the animal just normally called the nautilus, is like the, a marine mollusk that has a shell that sort of resembles an ammonite
1: shell. Also, oh yeah, absolutely. Still, a fascinating creature, and also definitely a creature worthy of uh, poetic consideration. Uh, speaking of and speaking of poetry, they also show up in uh, in other works of literature, including uh, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. Uh, there's a there's a section in it where they are uh, they're, they're aboard the Nautilus, the submarine, and uh, they are on, they've come up to the surface and they observe these creatures. They observe the paper Nautilus, the argonaut in action. Uh, so here's a quote from the book. Quote, now it was a school of Argonauts then voyaging on the surface of the ocean. We could count several hundred of them. They belonged to that species of Argonaut covered with protuberances and exclusive to the seas near India. These graceful mollusks were swimming backwards by means of their locomotive tubes, sucking water into these tubes and then expelling it. Six of their eight tentacles were long thin and floated on the water, while the other two were rounded into palms and spread to the wind like light sails. I could see perfectly their undulating spiral shaped shells which cuvier aptly compared to an elegant cockle boat (laughs) it's an actual boat indeed it transports the animal that secretes it without the animal sticking to it the Argonaut is free to leave its shell, I told conceal but it never does. Not unlike Captain Nemo, conceal replied sagely, which is why he should have christened it his ship the Argonaut. Oh, that's good. It's a shell of his own design. Yeah. yeah. So now they're also referring in this passage to this um, this myth or this outdated idea that they could use their arms as sails and sail oh, across yeah. the top of the water and that the shell is like actually a boat. And it really, in some senses, it is because it aids the creature in its in its board buoyancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, that's just a fun little uh, literary um, uh, usage of the Argonaut. And it also alludes to that fact that, yes, it can, it can technically leave the shell mm-hmm. because it doesn't actually grow the, the shell. It kind of makes it. Yeah. Uh, uh, but if, if you were to remove the species from its shell, it typically dies.
0: This is such a cool animal, and I like the idea that Jules Verne was like halfway through writing Twenty Thousand Leagues, uh-huh. and he discovered this animal, and he's like, "Oh, I should have gone back and named it the <laughs> Argonaut from the beginning, ah, but that'd take too much revision. I'll just plow ahead, and I'll have a character <laughs> acknowledge like it really would have been better if it was called this other thing." <laughs> but anyway, I, I wanted to come back to the ending of the poem by Marianne Moore. This powerful ending is what got me really thinking about the subject for today's episode and the next one. This idea of Th- this eight-armed cephalopod clutching at its egg case as if each of its arms knew that love is the only fortress strong enough to trust to. Does the paper Nautilus feel love? Do the coiled arms of the Argonauts simply clutch or do they embrace? Do they hug with all the emotional imba- – uh, you know, the, the baggage that comes with that?
1: I think most everyone would probably – I think the gut response that people are generally going to have is no. Uh, sure. You're going to think, no, a, a paper Nautilus – Uh, is not going to be capable of of love love is what humans do and you know maybe specific animals that we uh uh, live closely with that we anthropomorphize enough into but not the not the octopi not the not the 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 world of invertebrates well i
0: don't know it's i mean people would i think you'd encounter a lot of divergent opinion about that uh on one hand, you can say, "Yeah, I mean, of course, you're going to have a problem of if you believe that an octopus can love. I mean, how could you prove that?" Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and we'll address questions like that as we move on. But more broadly, I guess, can you can you imagine? Invertebrates in general, feeling anything analogous to the kind of plain familiar emotions that we name in poems, you know, does a does a crab feel fear? Does a bumblebee feel hate? Uh, does a snail feel disgust or jealousy or joy? Or, you know, is it, as you're sort of suggesting, folly to meaningfully apply
1: these words outside of humans, and maybe they're more closely related vertebrate relatives. Uh, Well, but then the other side to look at it, and this is something we'll continue to discuss as well, is that you bring up poetry, and poetry is very much a part of the – And I love poetry, but it is part of the the cult of human emotion. It Mm -hmm. definitely places things like love on a golden pedestal. And and so so there's kind of a a push and pull here when we look to the world of animals. We have to be willing— to throw our emotions off of that golden pedestal and, and look at what they really are from a you know, psychological and even biological standpoint. And at the same time, we have to be able to look to the animal world and be willing to uh, attribute these, uh, uh, these knockdown emotions to them as well.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, that, that's the other side of it. I mean, some people, I think, would say you're being stingy if you say that, a, that an Argonaut can't love. But then I think there are also people who would say, like, you're really you know degrading my feeling of my relationships and, and my love if you say that an octopus can do the same thing. Right. So
1: it gets, it gets complicated, and there's pl- plenty of room to be pissed off on both sides. So hopefully we'll piss everyone off as we proceed here. Well, maybe we should
0: take a break, and then when we come back, we can try to address the thorny, difficult question of what are emotions? Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
2: Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission
0: So to proceed here, we're going to have to take a quick stab at an exceedingly huge and complicated question, which is, what are emotions? Obviously, this is something we, we can't answer adequately in a subsection of one episode, but we'll do our best to, to try to, to hint at the broad picture of what this
1: question entails. Yeah, it can be so tricky to even contemplate this because, because I mean, one of the big things is that emotions are the, the, the tumultuous sea that we're constantly immersed in, that we feel cast about in, you know, mm-hmm. and this is, again, this gets into poetry as well, right? How many poems are about, uh, you know, the, the maelstrom of emotion, uh, you know, and, uh, and and how we just feel like we're just a victim to them. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we often think of emotions as being something that's inside us, but it's almost
0: more apt to think of us as being inside them. Like, we can't see the whole thing. We don't have perspective. We're, it's more like a sea on which we are floating. I think that's a great metaphor.
1: And yet, at the same time, we we are the sea, you know, yeah. like we often fall into this, uh, into this model that I think is largely what you see in the work of some of the, um, the you know, the classic philosophers of mm. logic and emotion. And then like logic is the domain of, you know, logic and reason on mm. one hand. And then there are the, the, the enemies of passion that, uh, uh that, uh, that tear us apart. It's the Apollo and Dionysus model. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's easy to fall back on that. It's just baked into so much of our culture. Yeah. And, and just in general, emotion is just something we're too close to. I, I sometimes Sometimes feel, like, feel that emotion is like a cantaloupe, you know. Hmm. Like when you buy a cantaloupe, when it, you cut, you don't know what it's going to be. You cut into it though, and when it's great, there's nothing else like it. It's amazing, and when it's bad, it's just the worst. I don't
0: and, know if I feel this way about cantaloupe. Really? I feel this way about tomatoes. Oh, yeah. Oh, tomatoes. Say tomato, yeah. uh, my favorite food in the world is a really good ripe summer tomato, and there's nothing worse than a mealy off-season tomato.
1: Yes. The tomato is also a great example of, of human emotion. Yeah. And I think a lot of our um, uh, meditative and mon- monastic traditions are ultimately aimed at fostering as much as possible a dependable honeydew melon, <laughs> mental state, something yeah. where you know you cut into it, and it's not going to be just It's not going to knock. knock. Knock your socks off, but it's also not going to disgust you. It's going to be a nice, pleasant, dependable experience right there in the middle. Calming the seas, eliminating the highs and lows, uh, creating equanimity. So this is this is where we are you know we're feeling creatures for better or worse but we've always tried to figure out emotions uh, we've tried to figure it out for for ages the greatest thinkers philosophers artists scientists uh, sages uh, you know religious uh, leaders throughout history have contemplated their nature and formulated various theories and we could easily do a multi-part series on the question of human emotions but the short view is that we have basically three ways of considering them first of all the idea of emotions as feelings. The way they feel is what they are. So it's a subjective state. And in that sense, the only emotion
0: you can ever really know is your own. Yes. Like you, you cannot share in anybody else's. You can think you do, but you can't know for sure. I mean, does somebody else's sadness feel like yours does? Does somebody else's happiness feel like yours does? You know, it's it's you you are trapped with your subjectivity here,
1: right? And then when you get into theory of mind, I mean, whew, I mean that's a whole issue there in and of itself, like to what to what degree do we attribute the same level of emotional investment to others? And in what cases are we attributing too much emotion to this individual and less emotion to this individual based on a whole host of uh, reasons? Well, so, but if emotion is just subjectivity, it seems hopeless that you could ever try to study it in
0: animals, right? If, if it's just a subjective experience, we have no access to it whatsoever.
1: Right. And And, and, and that would be the danger, right? If it was just Perpetually tied up in the other human concepts of, say, like consciousness and, uh, uh, and theory of mind, etc. Uh, but then we have these other two categories. First of all, emotions as evaluations. Hmm. Emotions are evaluations of the primary circumstances that we're dealing with. So, you know, a huge tie to the environmental stimuli, situational stimuli all around us. So emotions are ways of
0: reacting to the world. Right. They're, they're internal states that signal a certain
1: response to what you're seeing or dealing with. Right. You go through a haunted attraction around Halloween and you you feel something like fear or that sort of elated, safe feeling of fear, uh, whatever, however you want to categorize it. Uh, that is a product of the environment that you've thrust yourself into.
0: All right. And if these are internal states that are, products of evaluating an environment, you could then start to look at patterns about what the, what the features of those internal states are. What do they do to the brain? What do they
1: co- how do they cause you to react? And I guess that would bring us to the next way of looking at it, right? Yes, emotions as motivations, emotions as primarily motivating states. So basically, this would be a situation of where I am angry and therefore I strike out at somebody. It causes you to act in a certain way. right. Yeah. So there's a lot more to it than this, but these are those sort of the three basic pillars that are often discussed. So seemingly, you know, we can strike because we are angry. Uh, we're angry because we strike, and then we also just feel angry. Uh, and it all becomes this kind of cat's cradle of, um, of uh, physiology, behavior, and situational context. Another way to think of emotions is this. Uh, this is a, a definition that is often uh, used. Conscious mental reactions that we subjectively experience. And these strong feelings are typically directed towards a specific object or person resulting in or caused by uh, or certainly ac- accompanied by physiological and behavioral change. Thank <laughs> you. However, as we'll discuss in these episodes, throwing consciousness into it rather complicates things when we look to other animals, because while emotions are certainly tied up in the human conscious experience, is consciousness really required to have emotion? I think there is an extremely strong argument that it is not.
0: Well, you can certainly imagine, say, a robot that models emotional states without being conscious, right? Right. And And so you don't know if that's the case for any other animals. You don't know to what extent they're subjectively feeling emotions like you and I do, uh, or like you presumably do, Yeah. Uh, the, the The robot could still act angry and it would still do all the things that an angry person would do, or a robot could act sad and still have all the
1: reactions a sad person would have. Like, if, if, again, if you're coming back to emotions as evaluations, you could consider uh, a screensaver on a, uh, this is a very simple model of it, but a screensaver on a computer screen is a response to um, to what's going on in, in the world. Like Nobody's using the keyboard right now. Somebody's away from the machine, uh, so a relaxed state comes uh, into place. There is a paper we're going to look at
0: later in the episode. We'll, we'll come back to it in a bit, but it's by a Clint J. Perry and Luigi Bacciadonna that tried to put together all, all of these disparate ways of looking at emotion into a single definition that could be used for objective research purposes. And it, it comes out with something that will really... Make your heart burn. It's just, you know, (laughs) full of feeling. Quote Emotions are transient central states comprising subjective, cognitive, behavioral, and physiological phenomena that are triggered by appraisal of certain types of environmental stimuli. On one hand, I think that's great because it really does capture all the things you'd be looking for if you're trying to study emotions in a scientific way. On the other hand, that just sounds
1: hilarious. I think that's, that sentence is a, great, is a great example of why you need those three categories. Because if you run it all together there, it just sounds, it's a little overwhelming. But if you break it down into three definite, definite categories of consideration, I feel like it, uh, it makes a lot more sense, at least to me.
0: Yeah, we'll come back to a, another pretty similar way of breaking it down when we actually look at the study. But first, I, I wanted to come back to the eight-armed world where we started. So we started off talking about the paper Nautilus, the, also known as the Argonaut, this great octopus that, uh, that, that builds a fortress of love. I think the octopus world is a great place to start if we're looking for what would be the the clearest, easiest examples to find of something that really at least intuitively looks like emotions in the invertebrate world uh, because – of course, it's, it's long been a debate about whether thoughts and emotions can be said to exist in animals other than humans. You know, A lot of scientists would take issue with saying that there are emotions in any non-human animals because they would say, well, if we use human terms like happy and sad, that's just anthropomorphic projection. There's no way to prove it and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but- I really think intuitively most people are comfortable with the idea that some analogs to human emotions exist in other animals with complex brains like mammals and birds.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, I think part of the the whole exercise is is casting emotions down from that golden pedestal, Mm -hmm. uh, casting away the poetry and and thinking again about what they actually are. And certainly it's I I imagine that a, a duck it is not it never finds itself feeling sad about being sad mm-hmm. or something so you know conscious as the human model but something like sadness that we feel you you can certainly imagine it in a duck or a cat or or any of, of these certainly the these these higher organisms that come to mind i mean it's really
0: easy to see things that at least
1: really intuitively look like
0: emotions whether we're interpreting them right or not in social animals like dogs mm-hmm. it's really hard for me not to look at my dog and Think my dog is happy right now, or, or my
1: dog is angry,
0: or something.
1: Right? Uh, I mean, it, with I all like, the complexities that come with 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 making those kind of statements about an animal, of course. Right. Uh, because again, we can ne- we can never deny the power of anthropomorphism, exactly, but one of the first places I
0: wanted to go here with invertebrates is that I think what I just said about my dog, this powerful intuitive sense of my uh, you know day to day experience with a canine that this animal does feel emotions that are in some way similar to the emotions I feel, if you wanted to look for this pattern of intuition outside of our relationships with mammals, I think the octopus is a great place to start, so a couple of years ago. One of the books that I recommended in our summer reading episode was a book by an author named Cy Montgomery called The Soul of an Octopus, which is sort of a cross between a zoology book about the octopus and a memoir about the author's personal experiences with octopus minds and the people who study and care for octopuses. And that book really, it still sticks with me today. And one of the main reasons is that she presents in it all of these anecdotes that look like genuinely powerful emotions emotional connections and interactions between humans and cephalopods it reflects this steady unshakable sensation that many people who work with octopuses get which is on one hand they see this strange alien kind of intelligence but on the other hand they see a very familiar human kind of intelligence and even emotion at work Uh, of course again with all the Caveats these impressions, you know, they could be anthropomorphic projection. I think it's at least worth looking at the types of encounters that lead to this sort of thinking, whether the thinking is correct or not.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree that the, the octopus is a great example to look to because it it checks off so many opposite boxes. Yeah, you know, it is a, it is a, it is a solitary creature that that lives in a, in a different environment than we do. That has a, has a totally different structure to its body. It's it, it's like an alien yeah. uh, compared a, to us. Distributed
0: intelligence also. Mm-hmm. I mean, the intelligence of an octopus is not just central in its head. It, it, it appears to be able to think with its arms in ways that, you know, if we can do something like that, it's in a much more limited sense. Right. So – To cite a couple of the mini anecdotes and examples that appear in the book, uh, the, the first one is that at one point she's sharing a story from a biologist named Scott Dowd. So Dowd is working at an aquarium where one of his jobs is taking care of a dwarf Caribbean octopus who lives in one of the small display tanks. And one morning, Dowd comes in to find this octopus's tank overflowing onto the floor and the octopus itself seems to have vanished. It's not anywhere to be seen. And eventually he finds it. He finds that it has managed to squeeze itself into the tiny pipe that recirculates water in the tank. This pipe is only about half an inch wide. (laughs) So obviously there's a problem because the water can't recirculate because the octopus is Clogging the pipe and you need to get the octopus out of the pipe. So what do you do? I have no idea what you'd even begin to do to get something out of an aperture that small without harming it. Uh, But Dowd in this moment, he remembers having seen a National Geographic special about fishermen in Greece who were catching octopuses by setting out amphora pots in the ocean as traps and the octopuses would squeeze themselves into these pots, which seemed like perfect dens for them, only to then get hauled up to the surface by the fishermen. Uh, but how do you get the octopus out of the pot without breaking the pot? Well, there was a very simple solution. These octopuses were saltwater creatures, and the fishermen would pour fresh water into the pots. Uh, so the octopus is obviously being, you know, evolved for a saltwater environment. They don't like this at all. And they would immediately slither out of the pot and be captured. All right, that, that makes sense. So, of course, Dowd didn't want to kill and eat the, the dwarf octopus in the tank, but he figured that the same process might work to get it out of the pipe, and it did. Uh, he, he flushed it with fresh water, and the octopus came out. Now, years later, he, he tried the same trick to subdue a misbehaving female giant Pacific octopus that he's working with, and a lot of the emotional connections that people have with octopuses in this book are with these giant Pacific octopuses. They, they've got a lot of personality. But the story goes that Dowd would uh, you know, he, he he was dealing with this octopus, he would lift the top of the tank up to feed it and and she would put her arms out and attach herself to his hands and he would be unable to get her to let go and if he managed to peel one of the creature's arms off of him she would just instantly wrap two or more you know around the same hand again so like how do you get this octopus off of you well he remembered his earlier experience with the tiny octopus in the fresh water so he got the idea to repel the larger octopus the same way he filled up a pitcher in the sink and he poured it over the octopus clinging to his hand and again at First, it worked. The octopus let go of him and recoiled sharply. And Dowd said for a moment he was proud of himself for having rediscovered this useful trick and outsmarted this crafty creature. But then to read the next section from Montgomery's book, but the octopus was incensed. Quote, she got scarlet red and really thorny. It was a heated moment. What I didn't notice, he said, was she was blowing herself up she siphoned up a massive load of water and gushed a major surge of salt water onto my face. As he stood there dripping, Scott noticed the octopus had the same look on her face as I must have had on mine when I
1: thought I'd outwitted her. <laughs> I know. Which part of the octopus is the face? Now, here,
0: here you may be onto something. I don't know. How do you find the octopus's face? I mean... Uh, it's got eyes, but they're not really front facing, are they?
1: I mean, we can easily, I mean, again, a- our anthropomorphic powers are such that we can easily devise one. Uh, I believe there was a, wasn't there a, recently an issue with the the masters of emoticons? They made an octopus emoticon that uh, rearranged the anatomy to make it look more face-like. And, oh, no. uh, and I believe a, a biologist uh, corrected them on this. Oh, wait a minute,
0: though. I know that you find an octopus face sometimes when you look. Into your environment, because when you see the forked coat hook on the door, mm-hmm. you see the boxer octopus.
1: Yes, but I see a cartoon octopus, and <laughs> cartoons are human and have faces. Uh, cartoon animals are generally uh, animals that have been made human. Okay, I, I guess you're right about that. Uh, But coming back to the story about about uh,
0: Scott Dowd and the octopus, there is something about this kind of apparent anger and reciprocal vengeance that feels very much like an analog of complex human emotion. Again, maybe, you know, maybe we're just over reading into a single anecdote. But the book is full of anecdotes like this, where people really feel like they're having these
1: emotionally charged interactions with these eight armed critters. Yeah, like a defensive display is essentially what we're talking about here. Um, and and like that does have an emotional resonance. Like if you see a, a, a cat with a defensive display, a, a horse, a dog, et cetera, like, you know what they're about. There's a message they are sending. and there is a presumed emotional state behind it. And, you know, we 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 get it. We don't even have to be able to put it into words to to know what that state is. Yeah. And the really interesting
0: part is not that it was a defensive display when something was about to happen that the octopus didn't like. It happened After, Hmm. like he poured the fresh water on it, then it went back in its tank, then it puffed up and got red and shot him back. (laughs) (laughs) Like, isn't that much more interesting than if he'd been like cubbing at it with something it didn't want? Right. Uh, But there's another part of the book I wanted to talk about real quick that speaks of how persuasive the octopus's behavior was in convincing the people who worked with them that they had character, personality, and something like an inner life. Quote, The students were supposed to refer to their animals by numbers in their research papers, but they ended up calling them by name. Jetstream, Martha, Gertrude, Henry, bob some were so friendly a researcher named alexa said they would lift their arms out of the water like a dog jumps up to greet you or like a child who wants to be lifted up and hugged Uh, and then there's there's one more story from alexa in there uh where she says, quote, and then there was Wendy. Alexa used her as part of her thesis presentation. It was a formal event that was videotaped for which Alexa wore a nice suit. As soon as the cameras started rolling, Wendy drenched the student with salt water. The octopus scurried to the bottom of the tank, hid in the sand and refused to come out. Alexa is convinced the whole debacle occurred because the octopus realized in advance what was going to happen and resolved to prevent it. It's crafty. Now, on the other hand, I think we need to recognize that the subjective impressions of people who work directly with animals are probably going to be prone to all kinds of biases. I mean, even people who work with robots tend to attribute lots of essentially human qualities of mind to those robots. They name the robots. They think of the robots as having personalities and intentions apart from their explicit programming. You know, I often think Johnny the Roomba is, is being mischievous. He's chasing me around the house or around the kitchen right now, <laughs> uh, and yeah we're not tempted to actually think those impressions are telling it telling us anything real about the emotions of robots
1: no, but I mean to whatever extent it would be useful in dealing with a robot or or more you know realistically an animal uh, then we see the usefulness of that anthropomorphism mm-hmm. um, uh, like the you know the, the classic example being uh, like if you're dealing with an animal that could be dangerous when it's uh when it's in a defensive um, mood, right? you know, uh, like it's, it's, it's not so much about like the detail of the emotion that you were, uh, that you were imagining in its head, but to, but it's more about the, the degree to which it matches up with how it may act and then allowing you to respond appropriately hmm. or, or to not respond at all. Like this, this animal is mad. This animal is aggressive. I should not get close to it right now. Right. But you know, it's it's one thing for a scientist to um, you know to have to avoid intentionally inserting their anthropomorphic feelings into a study, uh, you know. But our but again, our theory of mind powers are useful in our relationships with animals, and I I I think you can you can sit you can you can state that they would be useful in interactions with animals, even in a study. Provided that you could still separate those feelings from the data. Sure, I mean I would say that they would be useful
0: in so far as they accurately predict outcomes. Right, which sometimes they
1: can. So uh, again, I think it's it's important for us to be able to to, to take human emotions off of the pedestal uh, and and think more about what they are and 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 stating that okay. Um, you know, the, the, the mind of an animal, the mind of an octopus or whatever, you know, th- their mind is a vessel that cannot hold the shape of our own emotional states. But our experience plus theory of mind allows us to have this instantaneous, uh, you know, almost translingual understanding of the basic properties of the other's emotional state.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess anytime we're trying to study emotional states, whether that's in animals or really even in other people, I mean, you you have to accept the subjective disconnect that Mm -hmm. you're not necessarily talking about the same things in terms of subjective feelings. But that once you get into these objective criteria that we alluded to earlier, and, and I guess what we'll, we'll, we're coming back to now, um, you can start to look for behavioral and cognitive analogies. Right.
1: Another way of thinking about it, to go back to my earlier metaphor of the cat's cradle, of, uh, you know, of, uh, of getting some yarn and weaving it between your, your fingers and creating a pattern, right? A uh-huh. uh, you know, crisscrossing uh, array of string uh, cast between the fingers of two hands. Ultimately, fewer or more fingers are not going to make it any less a cat's cradle, hmm. right? Uh, so if, if, um, you know, if five fingers are the, the, the shape of human uh, uh, cognitive complexity, there's a certain emotional um, – web that we can weave mm-hmm. and that we're you know trapped in most of the time uh, but uh, you know animals say they just have the have three fingers to cast uh, uh, that web with I mean they're still casting the web and then we might easily conceive what would it be like to uh, to cast a cat's cradle if you had seven fingers on each hand uh, it would it would be more complex it might be difficult for us to imagine what that would be like cognitively emotionally or what have you but it would still be something that is really Relatable to that experience.
0: Well, maybe we should take another break and then when we come back, we can discuss relating the human experience of emotions to analogous uh, behaviors and cognition in animals. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
2: Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99.
1: All right. We're back. We've been talking about emotion. We've been talking about emotion in animals and what exactly we would be looking for in trying to find that emotion. Especially emotion in invertebrates, because
0: right. uh, people are generally, I think, more comfortable with the idea that we see something strongly analogous to human emotions in other animals, like say, you know, mammals with complex brains, social mammals
1: and stuff. Right. Like not o- not only is everyone I think pretty on board with the idea to say dogs have emotions or even cats have emotions, it would be it would almost be socially dangerous to suggest <laughs> otherwise. So we're not. <laughs> are you, do you that? saying
0: you want to suggest otherwise? No, no. You're, I, fr- I, you're
1: afraid. No. no no, I think especially, uh, again, going back to the idea of taking the human poetic idea of emotion and bringing it down to a more realistic level, mm-hmm. stripping the poetry away from it. I think without a doubt, dogs and cats and, and other organisms we might even sometimes not, not wish to think about having emotions such as pigs and cows, um, uh, you know, th- th- they definitely have emotional states. Uh, so, yeah, I would not be the one to suggest that dogs don't have emotions, uh, and I, I pity the person who does make that suggestion because they will be attacked on the street.
0: Well, let's see if we can start some street fights about crawdads. <laughs> okay, so uh, for the next, for the rest of this episode and then uh, for most of n- the next episode also, I think we're going to be looking mainly at this one paper. It was a good paper I found published in 2017 in the Journal of Experimental Biology by Clint J. Perry and Luigi Bacciadonna called Studying Emotion in invertebrates, what has been done, what can be measured, and what they can provide. Uh, and so these two researchers, I believe, are both at uh, Queen Mary University of London. And this is not a single study but large review of existing research on invertebrate emotions. There actually aren't that many studies on invertebrate emotions. It's a fairly recent field. But what is out there is, at least in my mind, very interesting Now, the authors point out that invertebrates have long played a role in the history of neuroscience. It was research in invertebrates in the 19th and early 20th centuries that taught us what neurons were and how they were structured. Uh, insects are often believed to lack the structural neural complexity necessary to generate complex states like emotions. People think their brains are just too simple. You know, when you've got a brain that's structurally simple with, you know, such a few number of neurons, they just couldn't have a complex state like a persistent emotional state. Uh, And their behavior is often characterized in terms of simple sensorimotor response. So a snail or a spider might have an automatic Response that causes it to retreat from a hot match, but the animal isn't feeling anything that could reasonably be call- called, you know, anger or fear. Or a- a- persistent emotional state. That, that's often the view. But the authors think this old view is due for revision due to this growing body of research showing various invertebrates, not just octopuses like we were just talking about, being capable of mental phenomena previously considered unthinkable, including all kinds of stuff, uh, concept learning, numerical cognition, cultural transmission, and so forth. So in order to study emotion in animals, we need to land on a definition that that makes emotions susceptible to external detection. And that's where that definition that I mentioned earlier in the episode comes in. Again, it is, quote, emotions are transient central states comprising subjective, cognitive, behavioral, and physiological phenomena that are triggered by appraisal of certain types of environmental stimuli. So something in the environment causes it. The animal's appraisal of that thing in the environment triggers an internal state, and these internal states have subjective, cognitive, behavioral, and
1: physiological effects. And when you break it down like that— I feel like you have a model then that you can you can you can certainly you know informally uh, attribute to a, a wide variety of organisms but more to the point you can you can potentially test for it exactly and well you can definitely test for like three of the four
0: effects yes. you, you can't test for subjective states right we yeah, don't know. That,
1: that goes back to the three examples we had er, earlier that uh, feeling is what it feels like
0: yeah you, you can't do that but the other three you can so emotions are thought to have cognitive effects emotions Affect how you think and how you perceive. They have behavioral effects. Emotions affect what you do with your body. And they have physiological effects. Emotions affect unconscious or involuntary reactions within the body. So, just for example, to use fear, there is of course the subjective experience of fear. And we can only know this in the first person. You just assume by analogy that everybody else feels a similar subjective experience when they're afraid, but external observers you know, could document cognitive changes during fear, such as increased awareness of sensory stimuli signaling danger. Maybe, for example, when an animal is feeling fear, it is more likely to notice movement in its peripheral vision in this state. Uh, You could notice uh, behavioral changes, such as threat displays or retreat behaviors. You could notice physiological changes, such as increased heart rate or the release of uh, fight-or-flight hormones, like epinephrine, norepinephrine, and all that. You can notice dilate pupils relaxation of the bladder etc
1: yeah i mean we to, to go back to episodes that we've uh we've done on human fear and like the nature of fear uh it's a uh it really change. It kind of changes who you are. It always makes me think of the the, the Hunter S. Thompson quote: uh, "You're a whole different person when you're scared." Oh yeah. Uh, you know, we think we know how we're going to behave in a in a situation of real fear, uh, but we, we can't always be sure unless we have uh, sort of you know performed enough uh, exercises in fear, if you will. Uh, and even then, there, there may be unknowns. Well, of course. So fear, like
0: other emotions, has cognitive and behavioral effects in some cases, very strong
1: ones, what is who you are, it is your, how you think and how you act. Yeah, I mean, there are studies, again, these are human studies, but there, you know, there are studies that have looked at how fear and uncertainty affect our politics, you know? Yeah. Something as, you know, generally we think of as very, very complex and nuanced and based in ideas. And, and very stable, you Yeah, know? It's just
0: based on what we believe in a kind of permanent or semi-permanent way. But no, I mean, people's political opinions appear to fluctuate based on their, their emotional states day to day moment to moment.
1: Yeah, which of course should not come as a surprise if you're, you know, uh, aware of the degree to which um, emotions are manipulated by politicians. But, uh, but, but yeah, like you, you, add, you change the emotional state, you change how the animal behaves and perceives the world.
0: Right, so I think uh, in the time we have left to d- in today's episode, we've got time to look at the first one of these, the cognitive tests for invertebrate emotions, and we'll have to save the other types of tests for the next episode. Okay, But to look at the cognitive tests, one of the things that you can do to study emotions in uh, in humans, of course, but also in other animals, is something known as a judgment bias test. So imagine what is meant by
1: a test phrase. Here's a test phrase. The doctor examined little Emily's growth. All right. Well, that, that just brings to mind the, the clear image of little Emily in like a Norman, Norman Rockwell painting being, exam, being examined by the doctor and the doctor finding this grotesque mass <laughs> on the back of her neck.
0: Well, it turns out, see, so this is an ambiguous phrase. People interpret it different ways. And uh, at least in some studies- people with some conditions, uh, negative emotional conditions like depression or generalized anxiety, were more likely on average to read this ambiguous statement as being like what you're talking about, about some kind of disease growth. People with without anxiety or depression or people who had formerly had these conditions or were, and are now considered cured or in remission uh, were more likely to interpret it as measuring normal growth in childhood, he, as in he uh, measured her height.
1: Yeah. So um so first of all, I have to say, so, so the way that I answered it in the, the show here is also the way I responded to the text when I read it for oh, the yeah, first time. Oh yeah, me too, me so, too. <laughs> and it, is, impo- it is, is entirely possible that uh, that it comes from uh, me having just a generally uh, anxious or depressed state. Uh, however, I do have questions about to what degree this test phrase is weighted. <laughs> because if you simply add and development to the end of this test phrase, granted it makes it more specific and it's less ambiguous, but then there it, it also means there's no question. If you say... Uh, uh, the doctor examined little Emily's growth and development. You're not going to say, "Oh, he he was the doctor was looking at not only the weird thing on her neck but also how she's developing." <laughs> I don't know. Uh Oh, I feel like that would just make it not ambiguous anymore. Yeah, it, it's true, but I also just it just feels, it feels manipulative that that phrase to me. So I was looking around a little bit about this to see if anybody else had any problems with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it does seem as if the depression-linked negative interpretation bias findings are not without at least some criticism. Uh, Claire Lawson and Colin McLeod uh, bring it up in depression and the Inter- interpretation of ambiguity in 1999, and they pointed out that we could be talking about more about like a depression-linked response bias reflecting an elevated tendency for Depressives to emit or endorse negatively toned response options. So, so under this model, it's possible that depression maybe
0: just is affecting more like what you're likely to say to other people rather than what you're actually likely to represent internally.
1: Yeah, and I guess in this, we're getting into the complexity of of language and social interaction on it. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, also, others have argued that interpretation biases and depression might be limited to interpretations for the self. So, unless you are Little Emily, uh, there perhaps wouldn't be that much of an impact here. Um, you know, so it's, in, in a way, it's kind of like self-deprecating uh, humor. You know, mm-hmm. like it's it, it, it's it's more about how you are feeling and it's about the, the the stuff in the world that's directly affecting you, which makes sense because these emotional states are largely going to be connected to you are things of value to you, not some random little girl in a, uh, in a you know, an example phrase. Well,
0: I wouldn't want to put too much on that one example phrase. Maybe that's not a great example. Well,
1: it's, I, it's probably the better. I found a couple of phrases as well that were used in other studies, but that one was still the best and one that's free, frequently cited. Mm-hmm. Um, elsewhere, I found a 2007 study published in Cognition and Emotion from Bison and Sears, and they found no negative interpretive bias in their studies. But that's not to say that an emotional state won't just generally influence how information or stimuli is received. Uh, a loving touch may startle you and spin you around in a defensive stance if you are primed for a hostile physical encounter.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, there, there could be very salient criticisms that I'm not aware of. I, I thought I understood like that it's pretty well documented within humans and animals that, yeah, that like negative mood does tend to bias perception. So when you encounter something ambiguous, if you're feeling angry or sad, you're more likely to interpret the ambiguous thing in a pessimistic way.
1: Yeah, and, and I, th- I think that that is definitely the case. I, I guess well, the main thing I wanted to drive home is I didn't want anybody to engage in this sort of uh, uh, exercise with us here and have the same knee-jerk reaction that we did and then immediately assume that that means that they um, have an anxiety problem or, or in a depressive state.
0: Well, I mean, it, even if you did react that way and even if the test is generally valid, it would just be like one answer. You'd have to like do mm-hmm. an average of a bunch of different things to figure out what's
1: you know, more likely the case, right? Yes, but you know, we're humans and we tend right. to jump to conclusions and uh, <laughs> engage in. Uh, I guess, uh, um, what is the um, the X Men personality test uh, uh, that we've uh, a factor that we've discussed in the show before? X Men. I don't remember this. Why? Oh, um, I, the name is eluding me at the moment. But uh, you know, when you you engage, it's like the fortune cookie scenario or the uh, uh, the astrological chart scenario where the the future is read and it's just a little uh, piece of paper telling you something random, but you immediately identify things about yourself in that sagely statement. Oh, the forer effect. Yes, yes, yes. The, the, the Barnum effect also knows. Yes. Yes. A little something for everybody. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I think we, we can certainly log uh, possible criticisms of the judgment bias effect and keep them as an asterisk uh, over what we're about to read, which, you know, it may in some ways be undercut by any weakness in the inherent paradigm. But in some existing research on animals, we, we people have tried to use judgment bias tests to see if there is cognitive evidence of emotions in animals. And you, you can do this in some animals. Like if you, if you take rats and you train them to distinguish between two different tones say a high-pitched tone and a low-pitched tone. And then uh, in the enclosure with the rats is a lever that they can press. So if they press the lever when they hear the high pitch tone, they get a food pellet reward. But if they press the lever when they hear the low pitch tone, they get an unpleasant blast of white noise. So they learn and they get good at telling the difference. When the high pitch tone plays, they are quick to press the lever and get the food reward. When the low pitch tone plays, they hang back. They either take a long time to press the lever or they don't press it at all. And it turns out you can maneuver. Manipulate something like the rat's mood or emotional state, you know, asterisk with all the caveats that are implied there, to bias their judgments about new ambiguous stimuli. So what happens when you play a tone in between the two tones that the rats have been trained on? Uh, The studies show that, say, if you tilt the rat's housing up at an angle or if you wet the rat's bedding or introduce an unfamiliar rat to the group, when the ambiguous tone Plays, the rats will be much more avoidant of the lever in response to this this ambiguous stimuli than rats in a control condition with normal, stable housing conditions, which are more likely to interpret the ambiguous tone optimistically and run and press the lever. So what this looks like, again, and of course, you know, we could be over reading into it, but it looks like if you put rats in something like a bad emotional state by Mm -hmm. making them uncomfortable and uneasy, they're going to interpret unfamiliar information in a pessimistic way, whereas, quote, happy rats are more likely to interpret unfamiliar information in an optimistic way.
1: So it's an emotional state based on experience uh, that is preparing the rat to deal with, um, with, with incoming stimuli or, or incoming uh, environmental situations.
0: Yeah. I mean, it looks like a, quote, bad mood puts the animal in a kind of defensive posture. Right. Where it's less likely to explore an experiment, and it's less likely to, to take a risk. It's more just kind of hunkered
1: down. Right. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's like, um, and again, I think this helps to demystify the human experience of some of these emotions, even though these emotions get uh, you know, arguably more complex when you bring in human language and so forth. But if every time in the past that I've gone to a specific fast food restaurant, I have uh, I've gotten ill, then in the future, when I go back, I am going to be on guard uh, against uh, <laughs> incoming illness.
0: Of course, yeah. I mean, that's like classical conditioning, yeah. 101, one, totally. Yeah. So,
1: I mean, r- really, that's that's what we're talking about here. Um, you know, and I do think it does serve to demystify something like fear, but uh, really any of the emotions, even the lo- you know the loftier emotions like, uh, like you know like love uh, that you know we need to 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 take bring them bring them down a few steps anyway, so that we can uh, attribute these things to animals as well.
0: Yeah. Now, obviously, uh, I think as you and I have discussed before, it's more difficult to study some emotions than others. So you'll find right. more studies on on invertebrates. We're about to get into an invertebrate example on things like uh, aversion and anxiety and fear than you will in invertebrate love. Though there are some with invertebrate positive emotions that I think are very interesting. We'll, we'll yeah, get to one in just a second. It's, it's
1: generally easier to take an animal out of its natural habitat and study it by making it feel <laughs> anxious and afraid uh-huh. as opposed to making it feel at home. I mean, really, that's one of one of the problems in some of these uh, studies uh, that have been conducted with uh, um, specifically, I guess I'm thinking of um, rats and addiction, right? Mm-hmm. Like, are you, are you testing for uh, the response to these substances under, you know, ideal sort of or ambiguous circumstances or is it within the world of a rat prison that you've created in a room somewhere? Yeah
0: or is it unnatural within the rat prison but the results are useful to us anyway because the rats in the rat prison are kind of analogous to the way humans live now Yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's, like I say, it gets it gets complicated. Uh, but anyway, to, to move to invertebrates with the idea of the judgment bias test, uh, at least three studies so far have shown possible evidence of the judgment
1: bias effect in bees. Ah, bees. Uh, you know, this is a, this is another example of an animal that we generally don't uh, we, we don't attribute a lot of uh, personality to, or certainly emotional states. But uh, they are they're complicated organisms. They're they're, they're fascinating creatures. Yes. Well, let's take a look and see what we think. Uh, So the authors here cite two studies,
0: Bateson et al. in 2011 and Schlunz et al. in 2017 that studied this effect, the judgment bias effect in honeybees or Apis mellifera. So bees were trained on two different kinds of chemical odors that they sensed with their antennae, which were associated with two different sugar solutions that they could extend their proboscis to taste. So when odor A was sensed, that was associated with a sweet sugar solution, and when odor B was sensed, that was associated with a bitter quinine solution, which the bees did not like tasting. So if you train them on this, right, once they smell odor A, they're going to be like, oh, boy, sugar's coming. And the, you know that's the conditioned response. When they smell odor B, they're going to be like, oh, that's the bitter quinine. I don't want any of it. They get conditioned like this. And then the manipulation came when the researchers would go and shake the bee's housing vigorously for 60 seconds. And this was supposed to simulate a natural attack on the colony by a predator such as a honey badger. And to quote here, After the shaking manipulation, bees were tested with ambiguous odor mixtures, intermediate between the two mixtures used for training. In both studies, honeybees subjected to the shaking were less likely to respond to the ambiguous odor mixture closest in ratio to the odor mixture associated with quinine during training, suggesting that shaking induces a negative cognitive bias to ambiguous odor cues. So when the, the odor was somewhere between the other two odors, chemically, especially when it was closer to the bad odor, the bees that had been shaken were more likely to say, I don't want any of that. Again, this looks like a pessimistic bias.
1: Yeah, clearly. I mean, it seems like a clear case. Uh, now, the authors do offer
0: an important caveat here. They say, quote, however, it has been argued that shaking may cause bees to become better discriminators, shaking increased hemolymph concentrations of octopamine, which can modulate sensory function. Mm-hmm. Uh, and hemolymph, again, is like insect blood. They don't Of blood, they have hemolymph, this other circulatory uh, fluid. And so it increased this uh, this thing called octopamine, which is similar, I believe, to noradrenaline in, in mammals and humans. Uh, Uh, So remember, the the shaking really seemed to make a difference when the odor was ambiguous, but closer to the odor associated with the bitter food. So maybe shaken bees are just better at sensing that closeness to the bad outcome because of non-emotional physiological reasons. That's also
1: possible. Interesting.
0: But this isn't the only test of judgment bias effect in bees. Uh, Perry et al. in 2016 also studied the same thing, but in the opposite direction, optimistic bias created by pleasure or happiness, or at Mm. least what you might call an analog of pleasure or happiness in bumblebees. So again, there was a similar type of setup. They would train bumblebees to respond to two possible visual cues. There would be a green card on the left that has a cup of sugar water solution underneath it. This is the reward cue. And then a blue card on the right that has a cup of regular water underneath it, and this is the control cue. Trained bumblebees would learn to go straight to the green card on the left when it was present to get the sugar. They, you know, they don't bother with the blue card on the right. Now, what happens when you put a bluish greenish card in the middle of the two positions? Well, the study showed that if you give the bees a little bit of sugar reward before the test, they approach the ambiguous new stimulus, the blue green card in the middle position faster than if you don't give them any sugar. Hmm. And so the authors here say, quote, control experiments showed that after consumption of the small unexpected reward, bees did not increase their flight speed and were not more likely to explore novel stimuli, suggesting that the small reward did not simply increase the bees general. Activity or exploration, but was indeed due to changes in their decision-making processes under ambiguity, thus resembling optimism in humans. Uh, so again, there, there could be something wrong here that we're that we're missing. But at least it, on the surface, it looks like the bees are just expecting better outcomes
1: with ambiguous possibilities when they've had a little bit of sugary treats. Right. So I, I think one of the big takeaways from this is that is, again, you have to think of. Emotion is being tied to how we navigate the world, mm-hmm. and we are not the only organism that has to navigate uh, a, a world of, of changing circumstances. And and because uh, clearly the bee has to do that as well, and it has uh, similar abilities that result, or are, and are and or are caused by emotional states. Yeah,
0: but I think we've got to call it for this first episode, and we can come back and explore some more uh, research along these lines next time.
1: In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us anywhere you get a podcast these days. We don't even know all the places you get podcasts. Uh, we know a few of them. Uh, one of them is iHeart. And if you go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com, that will shoot you over to the iHeart listing for this show. Wherever you get the show, just make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. Those are the actions you can take that help support the show.
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Sam. Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Stuff
3: to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really.